Hello, and welcome to Make Mine Multiversity, the best podcast in our universe for exploring the Marvel multiverse. I'm Elias Rosner. And I'm Jana Hill. And I actually forgot that until just a second ago, but now I remember, and I'm here to fulfill my destiny. Excelsior. We are back. We're ready to do more Eternals, and uh, we got a weird one today. Yeah, to say the least. Uh, in fact, we have two weird ones, one of which I did not get a chance to read because, uh, well, y- you take it away. Uh, yeah, so we're talking Eternals of, when are we at now, like 2000, early 2000s, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and when did we last read Eternals? I know it was the late 90s. Did we get to 2000? Yes, I think the Heroes for Hire was like 2000, 2000. Uh, yeah, it was because I think we ended about a year before 9-11. Right, I remember saying that too. Um, and here we are, so yeah, here we are on the other side of that, and we're and Eternals are not the hot ticket item they once were in the 70s. If, if they ever were. Yeah, that was kind of a sarcastic hot ticket item. <laughs> but it's like a real fallow period, except... The book that I think I thought before we embarked on this endeavor was like the classic of the Eternals, the only Eternals book that you could recommend to your friend and tell them it was good. That's what I remember this comic's reputation being. Really? That is not yeah. the reputation I have been I have been told. Uh, that's not my understanding of it now either, also. Yeah. I mean, it may have been true at the time, but... Uh... Well, and, and to, to say it, we are talking about Neil Gaiman and John Romita Jr.'s Eternals, and we're also just touching upon another series uh, that came out around the same time uh, called The Eternal, which has to do with the Eternals characters, uh, written by one Chuck Austin. Yeah, that one is the one I did not get a chance to read, in part, as we, as I kind of detailed at the end of the last episode, it's just never been reprinted. It's not, and all of the Max books aren't available on Marvel Unlimited, probably because... Uh, Google hates anything with sex and will not let you put it up on an app on if it goes through their app store. Uh, America. America. Um, yeah. Uh, so I, we, this is our first time talking about Chuck Austin and this is our first time talking about Marvel Max. Elias, do you have any like experience or history with Marvel's Max line? Yeah, we, we've touched on it a couple times obliquely, but I've read the J. Michael Straczynski Squadron Supreme. Right, Supreme I, we Power, have talked about that. And that all ran in Marvel Max's Marvel's Max line, which was this out-of-continuity uh, attempt Sort of, to, sometimes. Sort of, sometimes. Eventually, stuff got looped back in, but it was billed as, we're going to tell these stories with these, like, C and D-list characters, which at the time was, like, The Punisher and Daredevil, and ones who were more street-level and very gritty, and it was, like, 18+. plus. There was a war machine. Oh, I didn't know that. Uh, I'm just trying to think of like weird Max titles. Oh, yeah. Punisher Max is one that people remember fondly. It probably is like the pinnacle of what the Max line was trying to achieve. But the the success story of the Max line is uh, Alias, which I think they now sell as AKA yes. Jessica Jones. Oh, yes. That did run under Max. Yeah. I believe that was the first Max comic because Bendis was so exciting to Marvel. He was like the young gun then. Mm-hmm. And he didn't just have this, like, Roman Reigns-style uh, championship run where Marvel just gave him anything he wanted for years and years and years. <laughs> um, but Deadpool. I just think it's... There was a Deadpool Max that was abhorrent. Um, <laughs> Howard the Duck. Howard the Duck Max, I remember thinking it was funny. <laughs> but yeah, so the thing is, 
the max line was like marvel is going to publish r-rated comics with these characters but then you go back and like the interpretation of what r-rated meant at the time is just like wildly swinging for ignorance is how i could put it politely yeah yeah like do you know um there was the Rawhide Kid Max comic. Do you know about this? Uh, I mean, I see the title in the list. I was wrong. I don't see Daredevil. Daredevil was Marvel Knights. Yes, Daredevil was, was Marvel Knights. Uh, it was, um, there was Punisher Max. Wolverine there was two Max. volumes of Punisher Max. And in the second one, uh, Elektra's a big character. Hmm. Interesting. But yeah, you were saying the Rawhide Kid? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Rawhide. So Rawhide Kid was a comic. And they were just like, what if Rawhide Kid was actually gay because he's so gay-coded? Okay. But this isn't written by gay characters with any uh, personal connection to this lifestyle. They're just like, oh, boy, wouldn't it be crazy if... And that's kind of uh... like the last they think about it. So they don't approach the topic with much much thoughtfulness. They feel pretty assured that they can just, like, fuck around and publish it. Mm. And I would say, by and large, that is how a lot of the Max comics read now. And um, and now that I'm thinking about it, that was, like, a big kind of cultural moment in the early 2000s when we were just, like, R-rated but it was just like uh, cultural taboos of the early 2000s with no sense of perspective. Mm. You know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah. It, it was just trying to have the thing without really analyzing and working with what the taboo, like why it's taboo and why maybe it shouldn't be taboo. Well, I feel like the the progressive approach to the same kind of thing today would be like find somebody who's connected to this taboo and then talk about like, why it's taboo don't just do it because it's exciting that it's taboo mm-hmm. like um i'm trying to think of something that was like real racy recently there's been a lot of gay stuff recently is all i could think about and like um we're getting a little bit uh looser with implying that characters are gay and giving them background mm-hmm. or, or whatever um but then it'll be a comic about how gay people are marginalized not a comic that marginalizes gay people in order to include them mm. Yeah, I get, I get that. I get the distinction. Broy is the is the word for this entire conversation. Anyway. Broy. <laughs> they were very broy. We were very broy in the early two thousands. Anyway, I was reflecting upon my Marvel Max reading, and I realized that. Um, so I liked comics a lot when I was a kid. I got Marvel books. Uh, then for a while, I dropped off comics because I hated Onslaught so much. And mm-hmm. but I still re- I have like a piles of like Calvin and Hobbes and Foxtrot and those kinds of comics. Yeah, newspapers. Uh, then my best buddy got me a copy of Sandman one year for Hanukkah, and I loved it. And then I started flirt, and that's going to be very relevant later in this episode. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I started flirting with like uh graphic novels a little bit. But in two thousand seven is when my comics reading explodes. And I told this story a bunch of times on the air. But when uh, the same friend who bought me Sandman gives me a DVD that he can't quite crack. And we finally figure out it's a scans of all of Ultimate Spider-Man. And I read them all over a year and fell back in love with comics. Mm-hmm. So then I would, and I just think this is like a really dates to a time and a place. Because this is not the kind of thing I would do right now. Certainly not comics. <laughs> um, but I would go on file sharing websites. And um, because I am old enough that I was using Napster for music when I was in high school. When I was in middle school, I was in eighth grade. Rip Napster. Yeah. And I, we moved on to Kazaa and then to LimeWire and then to FrostWire. Uh, my dad was very into them because he's a big music lover. Hmm. But but then as BitTorrent's becoming a thing, I was trying to remember when it was. And the first thing I ever BitTorrented was Final Fantasy VII Advent Children. Ooh. 
in 2005 because I was desperate Ooh. to watch it, and there were I importing the DVD cost like 200 bucks and would be region yeah. locked anyway because that was the, uh, the the times. I mean, they're still region locked, but um, at least shipping yeah. is slightly less. No, wait, no, it's more. Yeah, shipping got worse. Jeez, uh, that's a that's a real bummer to think about. Um, but so what I ended up doing as I was falling back in love with comics and I was a little pirating early 2000s asshole is I would go to a BitTorrent website. I would sort them by how by numbers of downloads, and then I would just go from the top down and read every popular pirated comic <laughs> in order. And so that's like a lot of the great runs of, of the time. Like Preacher is up there, and Why the Last Man, and the, and Fables are the okay. types of comics that are making the tops of these lists. Yeah. And I remember finding uh, someone shared a folder of every single Marvel Max comic. Ah, that would get a lot. And I saved a lot of those comics back in that days to an old external hard drive, which is kicking around at the bottom of a drawer somewhere, but I dug it up. I also have comics there, I must have mentioned, from legally purchasing DVDs on from the drugstore that were filled with thousands of issues. Oh, I miss... I don't miss having that as a thing, just DVDs with comics, but I miss being able to just have comics that I could read and not be forced onto a platform that'll break in two years. I mean, except that I guess DVDs are a platform that broke in like 10 years. Yeah, but you could move the files. You could move the files. But I'm just saying, like, I'm, I have a, I'm using my desktop that I built myself. I didn't put a DVD drive in it. That's where we're at with that kind of thing. Um, but anyway, for, for reasons of uh, plausibility, of uh, deniability, for legal reasons, I'm not going to specify whether or not the the Max comics came from one of these DVDs or came from the internet, but I just thought it was such an interesting point in time of like how we accessed media and how that's changing. Because like you said, it's not published anywhere now. Yeah, it's not available, period. They never came out with a trade, so you can't even like track down that. I'm sure there are single issues floating around, but, you know, how hard is it to find that considering it probably wasn't very popular when it was coming out? Right. And so you're driving uh, from comic store to comic store, look at their back issue bins, or you go to eBay and hope somebody has the entire, like, weird collection or something. It's not very convenient. No. And also, I don't think you could find Marvel Max on a BitTorrent website easily today, and that's also interesting because of how much less accessible that was than when it once when it was new and just like so easy to do. Mm. I also need to take a moment to talk about Chuck Austin. I love Chuck Austin. Elias, what is your relationship with Mr. Chuck Austin? Nothing. Please please tell please give me all of the good details. I know very little. I actually think you might find that you uh, have more of a relationship with Chuck Austin than you once thought. Oh. So Chuck Austin starts his comic book career in the indies, and right away from the beginning, he's doing, like, really sexually charged manga-style, like, sports comics and stuff. Okay. I say this with, like, deep affection and respect, but when you're even reading those early comics, which I have tracked down because of my deep love of Chuck Austin, uh, Mm -hmm. he's a dang-ass freak. He likes freaky (laughs) shit, and he wants to tell people about it. And we... As weird as it is to say, I think we need more freaky creators that aren't, like, real-life creeps. Yeah, well, and that's the beautiful... So that's going to be the beautiful part of the story, is what a wonderful guy he he will prove to be later in the story. Okay. Um, But so Chuck Austin uh, suddenly is writing X-Men in the very late 90s, early 2000s. Again, around the time that, I guess, he was doing this Eternals book. 
Uh, yeah. And you, I feel like uh, from your tone, I take it, uh, you know a little bit about the reputation Chuck Austin's X-Men has? Vaguely, yeah. Uh, there's a lot of fun X-Men podcasts out there. I listen to a bunch of them. And um, everyone, it's just kind of like agreed that Chuck Austin's The Draco is the worst X-Men story ever written. And like, all the rest of his stories are the bottom ten. Ooh. That's how uh, reviled Ooh. he is in the current uh, critical climate. Damn. Um, and dang-ass freak sex shit. Like, Havoc is in a coma at one point, and he's getting kind of molested by his nurse, but the nurse seems to be the protagonist in that story? Mm, do not like. There's also famously a really weird upsetting scene, upsetting to me, maybe someone's a dang-ass freak and they like this kind of shit, of... Mm-hmm. Um, a bunch of the X-Men are at the Guthrie house, the house of uh, Ma Guthrie, mother to Cannonball and Husk and a bunch of the other X-Men. Mm-hmm. And at the time, Husk is uh, dating Angel. They are a couple. And they have a big reconciliation in the backyard and they start making out and Angel starts flying into the sky. And then just the last panel on the page is Paige's clothes just falling onto her mom from um, the sky. So she's like naked and fucking her boyfriend in the sky in front of her friends and family. Yeah, that's, uh, yeah, no. I'm good. Then there's a panel of uh, Ma Guthrie's just like dead-eyed stare as she's like acknowledging that this is happening. And I forget exactly what she says, but then she like excuses herself politely and goes back into the house. And it's such a weird moment to write in the first place, maybe even weirder by um, how it's like reveling in the discomfort of the characters diegetically in the story. Okay. Mm-hmm. Um, X-Men sales tank for the first time in years. Chuck Austin... Um, I don't think got fired, but he's phasing out of Marvel. He does some DC work. I was looking into this. There's a bunch of DC work uh, that Chuck Austin publishes. Then he vanishes from the book and is replaced by somebody named J.D. Finn. Is it just him? It is widely accepted now that J.D. Finn was uh, a pseudonym for Chuck Austin. I don't know that it's ever been confirmed by anybody on the record. Oh, my God. Like, and I like to imagine that Chuck Austin, because this is the kind of guy I think he is. Never spoken to him. I would love to talk to you, Chuck Austin. Um, but then he like goes to DC and he's like, I see the sales on here, but like, can I just use a different name and keep going? And they're like, yeah, yeah, give it a shot. And then he returns to indie comics for a while. And that seems to be the end of the book on Chuck Austin. He came, he ruined superhero comics. We all reviled him. He tried to do more personal stuff. We kept reviling him and then he vanished, right? Yeah. Wrong. Chuck Austin, um, transitions quietly into animation and is the executive producer of a little show called Steven Universe. That's fucking wild. Yeah. So are you a Steven Universe fan, Elias? Yeah, I've, I've seen the whole thing. Uh, I, I love Steven Universe and I haven't finished it. Um, This is a good reminder that I should. But he had a bunch to do with getting Steven Universe off the ground. He befriended a lot of the young, uh, men, mostly female and queer, uh, like writing staff of the Steven Universe. And then he breaks off and is the co-showrunner of Netflix's She-Ra. That's wild. It's, it's him and uh, Noel Stevenson. Uh, Nate. Nate, Nate Steven. Stevenson. I just heard that. I'm so sorry I forgot. I Thank you for <laughs> correcting me on the air. Of course. Um, yeah, Nate. Uh, so Chuck Austin and Nate Stevenson. And again, right, just like that. I remember at the time we all thought that that was such a personal expression of, mm-hmm. uh, of Nate. And um, that's true. But Chuck Austin is co-credited. And both those shows also kind of have dang-ass sex freak energy. <laughs> A little bit. Despite being... A little bit. Netflix probably was like, mm, maybe not. I don't know, man. I I, I could send you to a little website called ao3.com backslash entrapta. Oh, yeah. 
Oh, it looks <laughs> like he joined starting in season two. Of Steven okay. Universe? Yeah. Uh, no, no, no. Of, of uh, she Shira. I think that's when he transitioned from Steven Universe over to Shira. That makes sense. But so I, I'm really fascinated, and his career is not over yet. I can't wait to see where it goes next. But like Chuck Austin, just like nobody was ready for his weird, uh, arguably queer energy that he was bringing to these stories. And then he found a bunch of like young people to help him build his vocabulary and like talk about the ideas that were in his heart. And now he's uh, helping usher really wonderful art into the world that talks about issues that clearly he uh, struggles with. Mm -hmm. So in conclusion, I love Chuck Austin. He seems like a freak. And the Eternal <laughs> Marvel Max is not a very good comic. Ooh. So what what happens in it? Like, just get the bare bones. Um, What is this book? I was flipping through it more than reading it. I was just going through the pages. It's very plotty. Like, there's just, like, a lot of pages with long word balloons. This is the era of Bendis' popularity. Um, So, like, these really tall panels with empty space filled with long conversations. Mm-hmm. Also, like, super gory uh, Garth Ennis-style violence and dismemberment and, like, meaty chunks of people getting torn out. Oof. But I actually think the high-concept, like, main big idea doesn't suck. Um, it's basically, what if Eternals but Bible is the pitch? Okay, so really pulling from the that, that one panel of Icarus being the dove for, right. for Ex- Noah. Yeah, exactly. And um, and it goes into the mythology stuff a little bit, but it's like mostly like caveman action stuff with like biblical epic vibes and like a little bit of like a dash of Conan the Barbarian. So kind of like what Jason Aaron was doing with the Goddamned. Yeah, I would imagine that uh, you, Jason Aaron's another guy of that generation, actually, who came out of that same kind of grew up on those violin comics in the 90s. Mm-hmm. Um, or that was the exciting thing when he was first starting out and comics were the best they ever were for him. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. And then it's like, it's got a couple of familiar Eternals characters, but it, the goal is to tell a self-contained, uh, unique story. It is really shocking. It is not that interesting. Hold on. I, d- I just need to pause you for a second. I was scrolling through Chuck Austin's bibliography. He drew two issues of Miracle Man under oh, Alan Moore. Yeah, I forgot about that. Yeah, that's what? that's what's that's what skyrocketed him to popularity because it's Alan Moore is so legendary at that point that everyone's like, well, if Alan Moore thinks this kid is talent, we gotta give him X Men right away. Oh my god, that's so weird. Anyway, continue. I, I thank you for uh, reminding me. Um, Kevin Walker draws this uh, Eternal Max comic. I like Kevin Walker a lot of the time. This was not my favorite Kevin Walker work. Mm. I, there is, you know, I could, I think it might've been the inking. You're better at, uh, criticizing stuff like that. And, um, yeah, it was just like, um, another take on the immortal astronaut thing. Ancient astronauts is what it's called. The ancient astronauts thing, but like done just as clunky and in a tackier style. The end. Chuck Austin, go back to doing freak stuff. I love you. (laughs) Um, maybe, maybe stay away from the Eternals though. Or maybe come back to it, and uh, now that you're such a good collaborator, uh, you and Gillen will make a masterpiece together. Who knows? Anyway, I just, I know that we weren't reading that. I know I just went on for a really long time. But the context around this weird Eternals comic that's not really an Eternals comic, that's like, kind of uh, offends my sensibilities, I was, I think it's just like such a... It's a good companion piece. Yeah, such a work, and it's such a worthwhile, like, check-in of the state of comic, the comic biz, and such a good setup for the guy that 
we're going to talk to the guys we're going to talk to after the commercial break. Hello, we're the hosts of the Multiversity Manga Club podcast. I'm Emily. I'm Zach. And I'm Walter. Each month, we pick a manga to read and discuss among ourselves. Past books include Monster, A Silent Voice, and Pokemon Adventures. We also look back on the past month's installments of Weekly Shonen Jump, discussing the highs and lows from the Viz Anthology. We've even discussed notable manga adaptations like Netflix's Death Note. At the end of each episode, we announce next month's book club pick so you can read along with us. We're always open to suggestions for future books as well. So join us on the first Friday of every month on MultiversityComics.com, Apple Podcasts, or your podcatcher of choice. And welcome back. We are here to talk about The Eternals, or Eternals? I'm not, I can't remember what it's actually called. Numbers one through called, seven. Uh, mm-hmm. Adjective list Eternals. Adjective list Eternals, numbers one through seven from 2007. Um, this is probably one of the highest profile Eternals books. Actually, I think it is the second highest profile Eternals book after um, Kirby's original. One could argue Kieran Gillen's is more prominent, but it's also more recent. So I I don't want to make any definitive statements on that. But if you say Eternals, people go Kirby and then Gaiman and J.R.J.R. I think that this comic was popular enough when I was working at comic book shops in like 2012. Mm Mm-hmm. That if you said Eternals, people wouldn't even remember that Jack Kirby created them. They'll be like, oh, that that uh, weird Neil Gaiman comic. Because Neil Gaiman was like so cool in 2012. Yeah, yeah. That is strange to think about how that has changed, but also not. Yeah, Neil, I mean, we've all, I was very into Neil Gaiman as a kid. As I mentioned in the first half of the show, as, Sandman was. As am I. I kind of figure you have the vibe. <laughs> Oh no. <laughs> um, and yeah, I, I kind of upset as, as like a childhood hero of mine, I kind of obsess over how Neil Gaiman is aging and what a weirdo he is. Yeah. But again, I think we need people who have weird art and his art is weird. I don't know about any of the personal stuff. That's uh that's a different realm. <laughs> I know all about the personal stuff because I am obsessed with his personal life in a oh way boy. that's probably tacky. Oh yeah. I oh remember boy. deep into COVID when he was going through his divorce, um, I was on a group call with just a bunch of friends because we were all lonely and it was like the height of quarantine. Yeah. And, um, and so one of them said, uh, asked me to explain what the Neil Gaiman divorce news was. And then me and the one other person I knew to be a Neil Gaiman fan on the call just started cackling. And we just had to, we we're just like, I, we can't explain it to you. It's, it's too personal to us. It's just like, um, it's just like this, like delight wrapped up into this, like guilt of the delight wrapped up into like probably some sexism that's important to unpack. But like, uh, re- like hardcore Neil Gaiman fans were like, oh, is he going to go back to doing like weird art? And not to make music with Amanda uh, Palmer. And, I mean, um, did he ever stop making weird art? No. Um, yeah, I mean, he was always weird, but uh, I don't know. He ha- he hasn't really returned to doing the stuff he used to do because he's different. No, it was, he's just like in a different phase. But mm-hmm. I wasn't that fond of the face during uh, that relationship. And I'm excited to find out what he does next. Okay. So for those who may not know who Neil Gaiman is, Neil oh, Gaiman geez, yeah. is... <laughs> Well, we got to establish some historical context. Yeah, he's just like the, the fabric of my being, so it's a little hard to remember that, like, yeah. he's not just a... And like... he's, he is kind of everywhere. If you are a comics fan, you have thrown a stone and run into a Neil Gaiman work or something adjacent to it. Uh, he really got his start 
in the American comic scene with Black Orchid, which was a three-issue miniseries under Vertigo. He was found by, I don't know if it was Shelley Bond or Karen Berger, the editors at the time. I've heard it was Karen Berger, but like I'm sure both of them had a lot to do with... No, it had to be Berger because Shelley Bond, I don't think, was part of the imprint yet. She joined later and edited Sandman in the back half. Well, 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 um, look who's a regular Charlie Kale. Uh, I, she, she writes all about it in her, uh, handbook on how to edit comics. Uh, oh, what was it called? Filth and Grammar. Great book. Great Great title. handbook. Yeah. It's excellent. Uh, if you find it, check it out. Uh, but yeah, that's where he got his start. He was part of the British invasion of comics, which included, uh, Grant Morrison and, and Alan Moore and... Quite a number of other uh, creators. Warren Ellis, artists. Garth Ennis. Oh, uh, yeah. Mike Carey. Uh, was me. Dean Ormston Orfe. part of that? I think he was. I that, Yeah, it could be. I don't know. Um, but a lot of those, specifically DC creators, DC and Vertigo creators uh, at the time. I think maybe Rick Veitch. Um, yeah. And also... And um, I'm, I'm, I, keep, I keep thinking of names of people and then being like, ah, oh, he's a creep now. <laughs> <laughs> it is it is quite unfortunate um but Gaiman was part of that and then he wrote sandman which was a monster of a hit took a little bit to i think really build up to that uh, but it ran for 75 issues and most people who know neil gaiman either know him from that or from his prose books where he wrote american gods he collaborated with terry pratchett to write good omens uh more recently, he wrote Ocean at the End of the Lane, uh, which was yeah, my you first real game in work. You say recently. How many years ago was that? Almost 10 years. Yeah. that's. Uh, oh, that's maybe more mean. than 10 years. It might have been 2012. I think it might have been. Ocean at no, it was before 2012. I read that book in... No, it's 2012. I read that book in grad school. Ah, 2013. So oh. 10 years ago this June. Yeah. So, like, and he's only published one book since then, and it, it was uh, Norse Mythology. Oh, yeah. Um, he has since done a bunch of show running. If you've watched the Sandman Netflix show or the Good Omens Amazon show. Both of which I really liked. Yeah, people were more mixed on, on those than I thought they would be. People were very mixed on American Gods, and that thing is a saga in and of itself. Yeah, that show, oh, is, uh, that show is just like such an exciting train wreck with such flashes of genius. Yeah. Yeah. What could have been is kind of amazing. And I wish I wish whatever happened behind the scenes did not happen. We can't talk about American Gods because then I'm going to start talking about uh, Brian Fuller and then I'm, we're never going to get out of here because I'm going to have to start talking about Hannibal. So we should talk about Neil Gaiman. <laughs> we should talk about anything else. So Neil Gaiman is kind of a uh, a big deal going into the early 2000s. Is that also just like how personal is uh, is Sandman and Neil Gaiman's work to to you personally? To me, Sandman, uh, I refused to read it for years because the covers scared me, and also and it's scary. It's scary, and also I hate, I hate, hate this book, uh, Arkham Asylum, by yeah. Grant Morrison and Dave McKean, who did the covers for Sandman. I hate the art. It made me angry, and I refuse to read anything with it. Um, I'm sure I would feel much better about it now. I read it when I was, like, 16, maybe. Maybe I've read it when I was younger, and I shouldn't have. But I did not like it. I read it when uh, I was... Uh, uh, and I was like, that... if Sandman's going to look like this, I don't want to read it. My friend no. who uh, bought me Sandman, I think that was around the time I was 16. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so... so uh... it... 
Mm-hmm. It's just like salmon, such a great like thing that you're not ready to read that you read when you're a kid to make you ready, <laughs> or to yeah. I guess go totally insane for sure. So I didn't read it until many years after I had first encountered Gaiman's work and other stuff. But then I read it and fell in love with the series uh, and everything that it was doing, like the approach to storytelling and fairy tales. It has a fairy tale vibe to it. You feel like you're reading, you know, a very old story. Which characterizes a lot of Gaiman's writing. There's a joke that uh, Chris Sims once said about Gaiman that me and my partner say all the time. Mm-hmm. Which is every... Uh, when he's, he's someone brought up Neil Gaiman, and he says... And then they ask what the book was about, and he said, It's about stories, isn't it? <laughs> it is. And that's kind of Neil, like Neil Gaiman's like mission statement. It's about stories, in it? Mm-hmm. Um, because it's, he loves stories about stories and like unpacking mythology and storytelling traditions. Mm-hmm. He does. He loves doing that. I just noted in our notes here. So Sandman started in 1989. That's when the, he's coming in on the British invasion. Um, yeah. But Marvel 1602 was published in 2002. And I feel like if Sandman is considered like the height of Neil Damon's uh, power in comics. Mm-hmm. Like when he's ending Sandman and going out on this like celebratory note, sixteen oh two is like the Nadir, where he's doing like weird Neil Gaiman work for hire spins, where like Steve Rogers cosplays as a Native American. Oh, that have you never read sixteen oh two? I did, and I loved it, but it's been so long. I did not real, <laughs> did not realize that. Even oh. a Neil Gaiman disaster is a Neil Gaiman disaster is like a Steven Spielberg disaster. It's going to be extremely readable or watchable, and just like. Not made by somebody who knows how to make a thing. See, I would not have characterized 1602 as a disaster by any any stretch of the imagination. I really it was popular. That. It was it was wildly popular at the time. I guess what I'm trying to I, I'm reconciling how I've heard it critically uh, talked about. It, people who've read it more recently. It's possible, and it's also probable that like reading it through the lens of well, what is it doing with the characters and anything dealing with you know early early u.s colonization is uh fraught to say the least can i tell you my two favorite pieces favorite pieces of weird 1602 trivia please one i forget the exact issue but 16 uh when they when captain america gives his backstory in that he tells about um purple man taking over the world being his like backstory okay and that happened in an issue of i think west coast avengers so 1602 comes out of west coast avengers Either West Coast Avengers or Marvel Comics Presents. It was one of those two series. Mm -hmm. Um, And 1602 doesn't really have its own... I mean, I think now it does, but for a long time it didn't have its own Earth designation number because in the story they explain, like, very carefully that it's a reality that only exists in this little, like, glass snow globe thing that the Watcher has. But so 1602, the entirety, physically exists within the confines of 616. Hmm. So it is part of uh, 616 because it is in a snow globe. That's wild. Yeah, just like that was technically, I think that's been retconned, but for a long time that was technically true and I loved that. That's great. What's the second bit of of trivia? The second bit of trivia was that West Coast Avengers. Oh, 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 okay. Yeah. Or Marvel Comics. The other context of this was Neil Gaiman was in the middle of at least one lawsuit trying to oh, get yeah. back the Jesus. rights of a character he had co-created or created when he was writing issues of Spawn with Todd McFarland, um, or for Todd McFarland. I don't know the details. He was the credited writer doing work for hire for Todd McFarland, um, and 
it was early image and image is all about creator owned if you write it you own it and mcfarlane was making money from the characters gaiman wrote but he wasn't including gaiman because he's like well i own those characters and he's like i wrote them the mission statement of your company proclaims Mm. that then i own them so he was in the middle of those lawsuits and those are expensive so he took on some work with marvel and one of the projects was 1602 and the other project to fund the lawsuits yes and the other project was this Eternals. I did not know this. And that makes sense because because then at the end of his lawsuit, he like gifts one of the characters to Marvel, essentially. Angela, who became an important part of um, Jason Aaron's Thor run uh, and also a very, very good miniseries that showed off the work of Stephanie Hans and uh, yeah. Marguerite Bennett. Yeah, I love that series. Yeah. Surprising. So, no but one. Angela hasn't really gotten much else to do. But Angela was originally a Spawn character. Yeah, and just uh, this lawsuit goes even farther back. It has to do with uh, Neil Gaiman working on Miracle Man and not getting the rights to that. Oh my god! Then the law. It even you can trace it back to the lawsuit where DC tried to sue Marvel for the trademark of Captain Marvel, but because um, Marvel published a title called Captain Marvel first, DC had to eventually change the character's name to Shazam because the title of the book couldn't have Captain Marvel in it. Yeah, and and. Charleston Comics is mixed in there because yeah. of, they originally owned Captain lawsuit, Marvel, a.k.a. Shazam. God. That lawsuit is the entire history of comics in one crazy narrative. That, what, lasted 60 years? Yeah, like 60 years. I mean, who can say it's even over now? Yeah. Uh, speaking of, Neil Gaiman is back to writing Miracle Man. That's where he is right now. That's insane. So, yeah, no, he has been publishing comics with Marvel for the last 10 years, it's just taken them one issue every five years to publish. I wish it's more lawsuits. Yeah. Not, a, not unusual with game and work sometimes. Yeah. So that's the writing side. Yeah. And then the art side, well, is a guy who I feel like one day we're probably going to have a whole episode on, but I think this is our first time talking about one of his books on the air. Yeah. Specifically about the book and not, you know talking about him kind of and then mentioning it we're going to be talking about his art specifically but this is john ramita jr son of john ramita senior a legendary marvel comics and just comics artist in general you talking jrjr or jrsr jrsr jrjr also is a legend but his uh legacy is a little bit more mixed yeah because so jr senior is cool because he was one of the first spider-man artists when ditko left the book yeah he defined spider-man in the bronze age yeah and like a bunch of just like the iconography of like spider-man jumping in that particular pose or whatever a lot of that comes from um ramita senior's work did he do the both spider-man no more and the like iconic panel of him lifting all of the the beams no lifting the beams was definitely ditko okay uh, Spider-Man No More, I'd have to look it up, but I think it's also Ditko. But, like, a bunch of those famous, like, Spider-Man is jumping and he's, like, shooting a web from between his legs, reaching between his ankles, and he's all curled up. Mm-hmm. That was what um, Ramita Senior was so good at, was, like, capturing the weird athleticism of his movement and how, like, and the inhumanness of it and the, the superness of it. Gotcha. I, I always thought that was cool. So you're going to have to take more of this up than me because I'm less familiar with JRJR's history than Neil Gaiman's. I'll tell you the truth, which is I didn't do an entire biography on JRJR because I still kind of figure we're going to devote an episode to him. Yeah. 
I think that that's probably if not a couple, probably a good good idea. But he's been he's been around for forever and has gone through many phases. Well, he's been around since the eighties. That's forever. That's forty years. It's since the seventies, maybe. Um, I looked at his earliest, like his earliest prominent Marvel work is doing Spidey in nineteen eighty. He's doing Spider Man. Mm-hmm. The same book his dad drew. Mm-hmm. Um, and around that time is when he does Daredevil with Anne Nesenti, who whose praises I have said on this podcast many times. Mm-hmm. And um, that I genuinely really like. John Romita Jr. doing um, Anne Nesenti Daredevil is crazy good. Okay. Um, in 2008, I'm in college. I'm getting back into comics. And I pick up this new popular book that everyone says is like going to be so great called Kick-Ass. This is 2008. Uh, kick ass. Written by Mark Miller and uh, drawn by John Romita Jr. At the time, I remember getting pretty into it just because I was in the honeymoon period. And I loved everything. Okay. Um. Now I am very critical of kick ass, like top to bottom. I own that movie on DVD somewhere, but like, I think that the comic is really nasty in like characteristically Miller ways. And I think the artwork is like disgusting to behold. Mm, and not in like a... Uh, Steve Dillon kind of way. Well, Steve Dillon is capturing like this really, he's evoking this feeling of ugliness that feels really real. He's like capturing ugliness in the world. The ugliness that John Romita Jr. brings to his art is like so uncanny and inhuman. It makes me uncomfortable. Gotcha. Okay. Like Romita is very angular and I like some angular artists. Uh, He's very square, but what I hate is when, um, his character will be like reaching a gloved hand and every finger is square and it looks like it's made of Lego bricks. Uh, things are very chunky. Things are chunky yeah. in his world. And, and I don't like There'll be like, he'll draw like a sharp edge to a finger so that you can see that the fingertip is like, it's like a, it's not a cylinder so much as it's a, it's a square. Yeah. And that's just like a freak. I don't know. That makes me uncomfortable and freaks me out. And then also I think that a lot of different people have colored JRJR's work over the years, some better and some worse. But like since Kick-Ass generally 2008, I have not liked how any of his works have been inked or colored. And I have to imagine that that has a lot to do with him and his preferences and his style. Yeah, it. I would uh, I'm more familiar with his with his more recent stuff. And some of it is quite bad, uh, especially over at DC. Very yeah. streaky, very like all over the place model wise uh when he was doing superman earth one for frank not earth one year one with frank miller first issue pretty good but then like his art was all over the place action comics he there was like one issue where he looked excellent and the rest he looked like uh someone spilled ink on his on his table and he just kind of smeared it across um I first encountered John Romita Jr. He was the artist on some latter-day Bendis Avenger stuff. Mm-hmm. I think uh, not maybe New Avengers or Mighty Avengers. Bendis did a lot of Avengers. Oh, yeah. Um, and to this day, that is some of my like least favorite comics ever from writing and art. Like That was, the, that was when my, the honeymoon period ended. It was Ooh. in 2012, Bendis Romita Avengers. Ooh, that's a shame. That's when I was like, oh, comics can be bad, too. Yeah. Yeah, they encompass the whole spectrum. Good, yeah. bad, okay. Wow, why did I read that? Um, so that brings us to this collaboration, which I think is considered like a legendary collaboration of 
John Romita Jr., as we said, a legacy and a legend in his own right, mm-hmm. and Neil Gaiman, uh, a great legend, they're only work together, I think. I believe so. Yeah. Neil Gaiman hasn't actually written that many comics. I guess so that's true. Makes sense. He's like John credited on more comics than he's even written. Yeah, probably. Um, okay. Did you like this comic, Elias? Well, first, let me let me do the uh, full credits. Then we oh, can... of course, of course. I would never yeah. want to deprive you. So it was written by Neil Gaiman, penciled by John Romita Jr., and it was inked by Danny Mickey and Tom Palmer with Tim Townsend, Jesse Delpergang, uh, Delperdang, and Klaus Janssen. Klaus Janssen! Klaus Janssen. It was colored by Matt Hollingsworth with Paul Mounts and Dean Matt White. Matt Hollingsworth, another one I love. Yeah, and lettered by the Im- immortal Todd Klein. Ooh, I like calling uh, I him love Todd, Todd Klein's lettering. He lettered Sandman. He is amazing. Uh, he deserves more credit. Sandman might be the best lettered comic ever. Yeah. And he made the transition from hand lettering to digital lettering look so good. Uh, I'm sure he's got some pretty rough stuff in between, but like he was one of the pioneers of digital lettering and making it look not only good, but you know, having evoking some of the warmth of hand le- of good hand lettering. Yeah, wow, that was beautifully said. Uh, and also, uh, Sandman's my second favorite lettering in comics. My number one, I'm realizing, is Wicked and Divine. <laughs> Wicked and Divine Wicked lettering and Divine is, is so good. It's kind of amazing. He, he has to like play music on a comic page, and they figure it out. It's so incredible. Oh my god, yeah, that's that takes skill. Yeah, I mean, the whole art too, but yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, that's it for uh, my Make Mine Image. So what do I... Do I like this comic? I don't know. Uh, when I was reading the first couple issues, I was like, oh, you know, I, I really like, I'm enjoying this. I'm like, I don't see, I can, I don't see this. Uh, I don't see why people are like so down on this comic specifically. Are people down on this comic by and large? I thought my, I thought my take was kind of obscure. The, the, for some reason, at least when I was encountering this, just in general, people either really like this comic or they're like this thing is awful they're like this thing is trash terrible eternal story terrible story and i'm like i don't see it and i reached the end and i went i can see why people wouldn't like this i can see why the parts that i don't like and i can also see why i think the critical consensus has soured on this because honestly it's a prologue it's not a story yeah and also thematically it sort of dips back into some of the battle days for eternals i think oh yeah oh yeah it's uh it's something this I'm, is also, I'm trying to mm-hmm. what's so interesting about this is from the time we started reading eternals until basically last week mm-hmm. last week last episode um it's been like a more or less a continuum. There was some like bumps on the road recently in the 90s when continuity started getting like sprawling. Yeah. But like 70s and 80s Eternals is like you follow them. Uh, each appearance picks up where the last one left off. It's sequential. And builds on it, adds something new. Uh, early 90s, it's still going sequentially, but it's the, that's when we're getting like Herod Factor and these like kind of uh, self-contained Eternal stories. Yeah, with... Uh... <laughs> serial killer yeah the serial killer eternal story which is like a decent high concept i suppose which we'll uh-huh. have that in a second but then we get into the uh late 90s and that's when there's just like straight up continuity errors happening left and right 
Yeah, and they don't even they haven't read the original Eternals comics. They're just like, who can blame us? They came out twenty years ago, and they're bad. Yeah, mostly whatever. they just wanted to do something with Cersei or with, uh, yeah, with Cersei because she was yeah. in Avengers for so long. Yeah, for quite a few issues. Um, but both the comics we're talking about today is the first time that in the, in this read through, and I think that Marvel was doing this a lot in these days. Um, where they kind of just say, fuck it. Uh, this isn't worth anything to us if we're not telling stories with it. Let's do something different. Mm-hmm. And they they launched this... I don't think they launched this Eternals comic hoping to have Neil Gaiman write it in perpetuity. No. This no, wasn't a 15-year endeavor. It was a, It was billed as a miniseries. It was six issues. And then they added a seventh because they couldn't fit everything in the story by then. And, you know, they don't fit everything in the story even with seven issues. But to be fair, it does have a beginning, middle, and an end. Uh, The middle is about, you know... (laughs) Three issues too long? Uh, (laughs) Not that the, the middle is three issues too long. It's like... Every the first couple issues are like a reasonably sized issue, and then issue three suddenly doubles in size, and then issue four doubles in size again. I'm like, what's <laughs> going on? That and that's that pacing is rough because like it just feels like uh you're in the school and the the clock is going slower and slower. Oh, it really does. It really does. I'm thinking about what I was just saying in relation to what you were just saying, and what this comic does that we haven't seen before really is say. It's an, it pitches a high concept to the Eternals. It's like, what's an idea? What's something I can do with the Eternals instead of like, what are the Eternals probably doing right now? Mm-hmm. Um, and what Neil Gaiman's idea is, and what I think is the best part of the series, actually, I mean, tell me if you agree. Okay. Is the Eternals are living amongst humanity, but they don't know who they are. They've completely forgotten who they are, and they just think that they're regular people. I think that's an excellent start to a series. And that's why I was like, issue one really did have me. I was like, this is really good. Me too. I, I'm intrigued. I want to know what's going on. I want to know why. All Seeing the characters kind of outside of their element and being then destabilized from the human world. That's a really good, intriguing, you know, through line. There's also, there's like, I, there's an exciting grounds for a story where up until now, it's like, okay, so the Eternals are these powerful guys. They were created by the Celestials. They weren't created by the Kree like the Inhumans were, but they're basically the same. Um, they got mixed up for gods a bunch of times, but those gods also exist. They just, like, sometimes were there and sometimes weren't. Mm-hmm. Just none of that's a hook to me. But the hook of what if these immortals just, like, lived amongst humanity for thousands of years and only recently were awoken to the fact that they were immortals. They thought they were just regular people. And then they have to reconcile their pasts and go trudging through history and find out, like, great deeds that they did. And there's always the mystery of your mysterious past, which, as we know from Wolverine, is storytelling dynamite. Oh, yeah. Um, I love this hook for the Eternals, and I'm kind of mad that the Eternals movie didn't just literally do that. It's really interesting because a decent amount of now that I have read this, I'm like, this is where the Eternals movie seemed to be pulling a lot of its stuff from. The getting the band back together feel. Yeah, the getting the band back together feel, the living amongst the humans, the something happened that that splintered them, Druig sucking. Uh, and although things like the Mad Weary from the last time don't show up here, uh and other aspects of it. Dreaming but the Dreaming Celestial is there. He's pretty central. 
And uh, th- this explains why the Dreaming Celestial is like parked outside of San Francisco and people wanted to tell stories about that. Yeah, yeah, because he was kind of forgotten after Gar had his big explosion. It's like, well, now people know that the Celestial is buried under uh, however many feet of rock just out there. Unfortunately, what the story does is not pull on any of those threads, but act as one big retelling retcon of Eternal's lore. Tosses out anything it doesn't like, changes things it does, but thinks it could be done better without much regard to what came before it and, like, reconciling the two. Uh, Like, there is no mention of Gar, Gower. Uh, The Dreaming Celestial's origins and, like, what his deal is has changed. The relationship between the Dreaming Celestial and the Deviants has changed. Um... Even like the Eternals is you know deal with each other has has shifted noticeably. Um, even when I, they're you know once they once they are the people they they remember they are, but at the same time this thing introduces the machine that is Earth. It introduces how the Eternals stay eternal, not just oh they're long lived, but they literally cannot die. They can be brought back. With no explanation for why that wasn't done earlier with this machine. Yeah. Um, it introduces the idea that they can't attack Celestials. We've seen them attack Celestials before. Yeah. Yeah, I guess, you know what? The fact that, uh, oh, the other thing that really got me. Yeah. So, you know, how they, the whole concept is them looking for the Eternals on Earth. And it says there were about a hundred of them. I think exactly a hundred is what they said. And they never breeded, which means... Athena's kids are gone. Uh, although maybe those are still there, and we they just don't address it. You mean the Gestalt child? Yeah, the Gestalt child. It's quietly forgotten. Um, but it doesn't reckon with the fact that all of the Eternals went off into space. Yeah, the rest happen. of the Eternals left. The whole point was there were like 10 people, 10 Eternals back on Earth. Like, where were all of these other Eternals hiding? That's what got me in the the last one that I didn't bring up. Like they started introducing a couple new Eternals, and I'm like, why? Where were they? Why didn't they answer the Unimind? That the implication was everyone was here. Well, so what Mine interests me? Think. No, I, I think that I, what interests me as a continuity nerd is um, like D. I, I famously people are making fun of DC with their movies right now about this. But, like, famously, every so often, DC has a freakout about how dense continuity is, and they think the solution is to write a story that resets the continuity, and then they immediately go back on it and do whatever they want anyway. Yep. Um, Making it, thus, millions of times more confusing than if they just hold the story sequentially. Yeah. Um, But Marvel, especially of late, a series will pick up. It almost never picks up exactly where the last one left off. There's always kind of the vibe that the characters were very busy between issues and we didn't even get to see all their adventures. Mm-hmm. Um, and the understanding that every so often, like, we're just going to kind of change things to how we want them to be now and we don't have to justify that ourselves to you. Like, if you go back and read J. Michael Straczynski Thor... Heimdall is a white guy with a brown beard. Mm-hmm. Um, and then in the Thor to come after that, uh, right immediately after, now the Thor movie has come out and Heimdall wears a helmet and his head looks like the night sky and it's just like his helmet is full of stars. <laughs> and then he just looks like Idris Elba. And they they didn't write a story about why his Heimdall looked different now. They're just kind of like, yep, Heimdall, he always looked like this or whatever. 
Yeah, and, and sometimes people would change faces as they got famous. Like Tony Stark beca- looked more like um, our, our Robert Downey Jr. Thank you, Robert Downey Jr. And Steve Rogers looked more like Chris Evans, although Chris Evans already kind of looked like Steve <laughs> Rogers. Like they they sort of morph, but it's but it was small changes like that that had happened. But now regularly, characters will change looks significantly between between issues which i don't really have a problem with it but it takes away but what what's what i'm waiting for an explanation for because we haven't gotten it yet uh is makari and ajak between now and gillen's run oh yeah so we should be on the like, because it's um but so I, I i was realizing this is the first time we're reading a marvel book that has that kind of flippant regard for continuity that's like ah whatever that sucked anyway here's what the eternals are now yeah um and also, and it's kind of like the assumption, like, no one's going to go into the back issue bins looking for the Herod factor of the new breed. Yeah, and uh, this felt like a deliberate, and it was, it was a deliberate ignoring of certain events. Um, Neil Gaiman even says as much in the interview that's at the back of my trade. He's like, over the years from the Kirby, con- he's very inspired by the Kirby version. Of course, that's so Neil. And you can feel it throughout. Uh, from the look, from the feel, you could f- it, it is a continuation of Kirby's story more than what came afterwards. And you really see that here. But he's even like, he's like, yeah, there were certain parts that, that were introduced later that I just straight up ignored because they were stupid. Like the Gestalt babies. Yeah. Unlike the 90s stuff where it felt negligent. They just didn't care. They didn't want to look it up. Or maybe yeah. they did and they were like, eh, too difficult. Here he went... No, I'm not. Like it was, it is intentional, and I think that's an important distinction too, because you you feel it in the story. This feels like it's intentionally crafting, kind of a more cohesive whole to try and explain away why certain things aren't there, like supplying other explanations or other stories to replace it, uh, versus you know just straight up ignoring something and and not realizing that it's contradictory. It's, well, it's like when he got work to hired, either somebody told him or he said, like, ugh, the Eternals aren't even a good idea. We need to give it an idea. Oh, no, he loves the Eternals, which is fascinating. Yeah. I'm also, I'm, I'm realizing how inspired, oh, what I was going to say before was that um, I kind of regret that I've been reading contemporary Marvel comics featuring a lot of Eternal stuff so much. Mm-hmm. Because um, now I'm, I'm, I'm almost not noticing when, like you mentioned that this was the first mention of the machine called Earth. And I kind of forgot that that hadn't been mentioned yet because I had read an Eternals comic that came out, you know, like last month or whatever. <laughs> um, yeah. And that kind of threw me off, just like uh, that taking away from the purity of uh, of this exercise, I guess. I guess. But also it, it's helpful that we have read it so that we can more chart those things being like, oh, this is where that showed up. This is where this showed up. Yeah. I'm for, well, I'm forgetting to do that. So I'm appreciating that I, uh, you took note of it. Um because of the continuity of it all. Um, I also want to, um, you can just compare JRJR to Jack Kirby, the king. Mm-hmm. And I got to tell you, the art on this book was not to my taste, but there was a couple of times I it really impressed me and I, I, I couldn't help but applaud it. I'm going to be more more praiseworthy. I really liked Romita Jr.'s art on this. Um, there were pa- more pages than not that I was like, this is both good sequential art and good, like, just draftsmanship and there are some pages where panels and pages where i'm like oh no that's bad Ooh, 
whoever 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 drew it and inked it was uh did not do a good job well and that's so tough because like what you're talking about is like fundamentals is like the basics of the craft Mm -hmm. and he's so solid on the fundamentals except when he's not what the fuck's going on man yeah i don't know like galactus looks so weird in this one panel but then like the chunky scary tree and the celestials so good so the there was one panel i caught i like caught uh screen capped and put on my computer to keep forever Mm -hmm. and do you want to guess what it is the one panel in the entire series uh it's not cersei with the s spine is it no god no it's um uh, is it the the two-page spread where the eternals where uh icarus is is flying makari away and the celestials are in the background towering over everything i love it's, that page it, yeah it's near there it's the uh the brontosaurus wandering into the celestial's palm <laughs> and uh the, the dinosaur looks like uh like a canary proportionally. yeah it's like so small and it's so crazy. You're like, that's the biggest dinosaur. I would not be, I would, I am not a 16th of the size of that creature. And that creature is not a millionth of the size of the celestial. Yeah. And, and through this whole thing, what Kirby manages to sell over and over again is like, not Kirby, what uh, Ramita manages to sell over and over again is size and scale and like the grandeur of how towering this all is. Yeah. He can't draw kids to save his life though. The kids are horrifying and make me want to peel off my own skin. <laughs> Sprite is scary. Sprite is very scary. I kind of accept Sprite being horrifying because I have been watching a lot of Anne Rice related materials lately. Mm-hmm. And uh, so I'm just, I'm really in a place where I'm fascinated by the existential horror of being an eternal kid. Huh. Yeah, that's, uh... Elias, we're gonna have to watch the interview with the vampire show together sometime. Oh, dear. It's so good. It's so oh, good. Okay, uh, I wish I had the the issue by issue credits because it would have been interesting to see if the pages I liked had Danny Mickey on. Uh, hold on, I, I'm getting that bad foley of pages turning. Yeah, but so I was gonna ask, are you you did a paper copy for this one? Yes, I got the paper copy, uh, which is very nice. Uh, it also made that one page that I had to turn on its side much easier to to stomach. Uh, at least when it was done here, it was to sell how big a celestial is. Can, yeah. I can it, get it behind was, that. You're right, because it was really purposeful and effective, which it rarely yeah. is. Uh, and like um, the the panels turning beforehand, you're like, oh, what's happening? The whole world yeah. is changing. Yeah. And that was like, that was great. And that's uh, when you're reading um, a Gillen McKelvey collab, like The Wicked and the Divine. Um, there's always that one page that just like does something like formally weird just to like show off. Mm-hmm. Like in Young Avengers where they time travel and it's just a, all of the comic panels of the issue. They're just walking backwards across them in a 3D plane. Yeah, that's great. Yeah, uh, that's the coolest shit. Um, but this was like as cool as that. And it was even more impressive because everyone tries and fails. It's like a wonder <laughs> in movies. Everyone does a wonder, but every so often you're like, wow, that wonder was excellent. <laughs> Oh, boy. I did not like this at all when I read it the first time, mostly because of my aversion to the art and because of my the tedium of the characters. Mm -hmm. um, now that we have been doing Eternals for so long, um, I found a lot more to like in this, and it was more interesting. And um, and I got to see, because we've so recently relatively read all the Eternals that came before, I am really assessing the changes that Gaiman is making, and I agree with like almost every single one. <laughs> It's funny. I I reached when I was reading. I was like, oh, 
that that change happened and that change happened i'm like but all the changes really were for the best uh except one very big change where the heck is crow yeah i noticed that too and there, it's not like there's not deviants that show up here and i kind of thought they were doing some interesting stuff with the deviants who in this story uh what do they want to be called they, they come up with a politically correct nomenclature uh the changing people the changing people which first of all cool i'm into that mm-hmm and second of all, just like, okay, thematically we're doing something here. People who are uh, called something they prefer not to be called and socially who's got the power and what that all... Like, that's all good superhero metaphor bullshit that um, never had been re- around and kind of was, like, gross in earlier Eternal stories. Yeah. It's just a shame Gaiman doesn't really want to interact with that. Or maybe he doesn't have the space. Like, he presents it and he has it, but there's this air of, like unreasonableness because the deviants are framed in the story still as antagonists the whole way through even though like the eternals continue to be their biggest their biggest problems like sprite being uh sprite being the reason why everyone lost their memories and was it who else was it oh yeah he's the one who tries to wake up the dreaming celestial and then druig being basically hitler i guess Putin? Maybe Putin. So he's Hitler, Hitler, super Hitler. Yeah, Hitler, Hitler, super Hitler. Behind the scenes guy. Although he's actually clever. So, but uh, yeah. And just like a monstrous fascist who wants to do a genocide. Yeah. So yeah. And the deviants are somewhat sympathetic, but I think they're only more sympathetic to us because we've been reading about them for so long. Whereas the story doesn't really try to. Um, do anything with them i think they subs i think that's why gaiman left crow out and said there's craw and his army and craw is just big big scary teeth guy god he's got so many spikes i also um i have never liked a john romita jr's monster design yes john i i like him but also there's just so many lines they all look so foldy yeah they look crumpled to me like crumpled up balls of paper yeah yeah why did Zerus have to come back to power? I don't like Zerus. Zerus sucks. I I mean, like, if the Eternals still need to be redeemed, we still need, like, great Eternals comics, we uh, should be trying to redeem Zerus and write something interesting about him. He doesn't have to be good, he just needs to be interesting. Yeah. Yeah. They suck. You know, I'll give Gaiman this. I'll give him. I still liked it, but I'll give Gaiman this. He made Icarus interesting. Yeah, I guess that's true. Icarus really worked as the protagonist for me here. And mm-hmm. um, when we, I'm, I don't want to spoil it because there's a one thing that there's a, the, the, the running uh, device that Gillen uses later to talk about Icarus. Mm-hmm. And I, the, that characterization I think is from here. He's so like focused and deliberate and yes. unstoppable. And like yes. his focus is interesting. It's like a kind of a personality flaw that people notice. And I can't wait till we get to that because I think Gillum's really in conversation with this book, almost definitely, specifically yeah. with a lot of his stuff in that first arc. And, and like, duh, he uh, talking about Neil Gaiman here, talking about Neil Gaiman and Karen Gillum. Yeah, but like, he could have he could have been in conversation with Kirby, but he's more in conversation with Gaiman, who is in conversation with Kirby. And that is the circle of comics life. Yep, yep. What are we reading for next time, Elias? Next time, we are going to be reading the next Eternal series, which comes out uh, about a year later. 
or, or less than a year later. And I believe I have not read it. Um, no, a, a little over a year later follows up on the stuff that this was doing. I would hope so, because this Eternals comic ends with we have three or four Eternals and they're off to search the country for the rest of the hundred Eternals, which this comic also codified the exact number of Eternals. Um because it had a whole weird preoccupation with, like, why didn't they go to Bone Town and defeat all the humans? Well, you know. that's keeping I... the spirit of Chuck Austin alive by making a dang-ass free <laughs> sex stuff. Yep. So that was a nine-issue series with one annual. It's Eternals Volume 4, and it was collected into two uh, trade paperbacks, Eternals Volume 1, To Slay a God, and Volume 2, Manifest Destiny. Uh, I don't think I know anything about these comics. Yeah, I don't know anything either, and I'm very curious to see what's being followed up on, what's not. Um, There was one other thing before we wrap up. Oh, yeah. That I want to bring up with with this, other than uh, Mark Curry from Macari, it took me too too long to to make to get that we, connection. I can't believe we forgot to mention that they all have stupid names that are amazing. Yep, Neil Gaiman even says in that interview, he's like, "I love that Icarus was under the not at all obvious name of Ike Harris." That's so funny, and just like uh, they're, I love that they're all like uh, regular guy names. They feel like they're wearing like Groucho glasses, trying to blend in. <laughs> yeah, it really is. Um, oh, I had it, name. and then I forgot it. What was what, it? One of the names? No, it had it had to do with the what, what I want to talk about. With it had to do with how we how we leave this, where it ends. Uh, they're going to look for the hundred Eternals. Yeah, they're going to look for a hundred Eternals. Maybe if I remember, I'll, I'll bring it up in the next one. Um, I think it was just, this was, like I said, it it felt like prologue. They didn't feel like we actually went on the adventure. Um, yeah, well, because they were setting up this new thing, and they're like, now this is, we got Neil Gaiman to spice up the Eternal, so now everyone will like it. Yeah, this, this is their new... Uh, New new status quo. Yeah, and like whatever we do next, we'll be following up on this, and we couldn't possibly abandon any of these ideas. Is <laughs> the promise of this? We we promise. Let's see if that promise gets fulfilled. Yeah. Uh, until till then, where can they find you, Jane, on the larger interwebs? Hey, you know the drill. Not in that many places these days. Uh, but I keep a Tumblr just for fun. It's a uh, rambling moose at uh, dot tumblr dot com ramblingmoose.tumblr.com. I uh, also keep continue to write for Multiversity Comics, a pretty great website where I mostly write about X-Men and other comic book things, and sometimes on other websites too. I've been doing a lot of video games lately on a website called Cog Connected, which is nice because I get to play video games. Oh, how about you, Elias? Where can people find you on the larger interwebs? Uh, they can find my Twitter handle at Twitter, uh, or on Twitter at Quetzalish. That's Q-U-E-T-Z-E-L-I-S-H. Um, it's mostly, I, I don't post there anymore. I rarely post it there anyway. So if you want to contact me, you can email me at erosner at multiversitycomics.com. Uh, and you can also find me writing over there. Uh, but that's pretty much it. Yeah. And we will see you next time for some more weird Eternals books. Excelsior. Excelsior.